Right, thank you, Rick. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, in the spirit of what Rick was saying, I will try to get us through on a good clip so that uh, engagements don't keep you, don't make you late for appointments and engagements uh, after today, after the talk. Uh, as Rick mentioned, I'm in a bit of a transitional phase, uh, which um, does have an advantage since you guys here at Ohio State, it looks like are heading towards a title in football. You may know that in Morgantown, the way that they celebrate athletic victory or lament athletic defeat is to haul couches into the streets and burn them. You guys know this? So it's become uh, nationally infamous, I guess. And um, it's part of your orientation as a faculty member. So I know all the proper techniques. Uh, if after this you'd like to sort of get a few pointers on how best to torture furniture in celebration, I'd be happy to walk you through that. Uh, let me begin being a trivia buff with a pop quiz. Gold star for anyone in the room who knows when the term spin doctor was coined. Anyone? Bueller? <laughs> most times I've asked this, most people get it wrong. It was actually in 1984 in a New York Times article. Uh, and though it's a trivial point, I mention it because it underlines uh, a key point about my research project. Because even if the term spin doctor didn't exist until 1984, the concept and uh, the, the job, essentially, did in a variety of definitions uh, and titles uh, over uh, the decades. And I mention this because my study is, in a sense, a study of U.S. government spin doctors uh, in the period before they were so named. If you'll follow me into the Hall of Mirrors a little bit, uh, in studying U.S. Cold War public diplomacy in the Third World, from 1947 to 1965, not only during long stretches of that period is the term spin doctor not coined, but neither are the terms public diplomacy or Cold War. And this is important because one theme of my study is the need for conceptual clarity, and clarity begins with the act of naming. The fact that the terms in question shift during this period under study is no accident, because as I hope to show, uh, it reflects that not only the atmosphere around them, but the ground beneath them was shifting as well. Now, a quick confession. Uh, my talk is not only a history of this phenomenon, but a, an illustration of it, too. So while I'm fairly happy with my title, which Rick gave you, The Contest, Hearts, Minds, and the History of U.S. Public Diplomacy in the Third World, the study itself is a work in progress. This is partly calculated and partly in deference to the Mershon Center's wishes that its fellows present early. Uh, it means that we can launch this conversation at this point of the year, and I selfishly get to benefit uh, from it through the course of my time here. Uh, there is a cost that it will impose on you, since it means that what you're getting is uh, the individual parts of a book whose parts are unevenly and only semi-chronologically finished, not the final project, uh, not the final polished project, which I hope we get at the end of the year. So what we'll go through today is not so much a detailed case study in any, any individual one event, but rather a broad overview of what I'm trying to do. The book will study a range of public diplomacy, uh, focusing on crises and the public diplomacy reply thereto. As Rick noted, I mentioned that uh, I conclude that even though the record is essentially a mixed one, on balance, U.S. Cold War public diplomacy in the Third World is relatively inexpensive, relatively successful, and perhaps most importantly, was conducted in a systematic way central to overall U.S. Cold War strategy. It thus has much to teach scholars and policymakers embroiled in uh, the war of ideas that is part of the current age of terror. Now, this latter point is important because the fact that I'm writing this book is more or less an accident. My original research at the dissertation stage and since then has been on U.S. Third World relations, uh, for example, dissertation on U.S. Caribbean relations during the decolonization of the British West Indies. And I've spun that off into studying decolonization in some other parts of the world, Africa and Asia. 
public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy particularly, were part of this, but they weren't really central to it. And there was nothing to strongly suggest that it was going to go in this direction until two things happened. One was 9-11, and the other was the Smith-Richardson Foundation's Junior Faculty Fellows Program. September 11th turned my attention to the longer history of American public diplomacy, the American image in the third world, and the Smith-Richardson Foundation program, which encourages junior faculty to study issues of international security interest with an eye to current policymaking. In other words, they very much want to bring the lessons forward from uh, scholarship about the past. Uh, I was lucky enough to get one of these fellowships and to dive into this project uh, starting last year. So uh, I've bitten off uh, rather a large mouthful, probably more uh, than I anticipated, but it's been a pretty tasty one thus far. By way of introducing the subject, let me offer a few definitions and a sense of the scholarly landscape. The term public diplomacy was coined in 1961 to denote a concept that had been around more or less amorphously uh, for much longer, probably since Woodrow Wilson, if not arguably before. Its basic meaning is the array of efforts meant to serve American policy by shaping foreign opinion, foreign public opinion. It differs from traditional diplomacy by assigning the masses a role and prodding them to play it via a range of means, but especially via the mass media. If I could turn your attention at this point, oh wait, that's the wrong one, to the screen. I left my trusty laser pointer upstairs, so you'll have to bear with me. Fortunately, being freakishly tall, I can just point uh, up here. This is a graphic from a study commissioned by the Eisenhower administration. It's called The Psychological Aspects of U.S. Diplomacy. And it's meant to represent what they saw then as a watershed in political communication. The box on the left has a figure seated around a table, and it says former diplomatic negotiations. This was how diplomacy was conducted in the era before mass politics and mass media. Since we're in that latter era, major dimension in today's negotiation, microphone at the table of the private diplomacy or the, or the confined diplomacy, symbol, and the psychological dimension. Down here it says people of the world. In other words, thanks to mass media and mass politics, everybody's listening in on and participating in diplomacy in ways they hadn't previously been able to do. Now, in this sense, public diplomacy is a very 20th century concept. It reflects uh, the age of mass politics and mass media uh, and entails uh, a variety of things, propaganda of various shades, non-propagandistic information and cultural exchange and operations, various forms of cultural diplomacy. Basically, it's anything that the U.S. government uses to reach foreign publics. A few caveats. Uh, please note that the, uh, the public diplomacy uh, means the official and deliberate U.S. government efforts. So we're not talking here about the uh, effects, primary or secondary, of American business overseas, selling Coca-Cola in El Salvador or what have you. We're not talking so much about uh, non-governmental mass media culture or, or other Hollywood types of outreach that happen uh, around the world. And these things, in fact, are as much an obstacle uh, often to public diplomacy as an asset to it. Catherine, get to the lights, please. The second, the list of uh, areas that are thus covered uh, blurs the line between long and short-term time horizons. And this is important in designing and assessing public diplomacy because the two are separate things. This project and how I've described it is going to focus much more on the short-term, not so much on the long-term. And it's important to keep them apart because, third caveat, if you don't, it's impossible to design metrics of public diplomacy success. 
So per this definition of public diplomacy and these caveats, my study will focus on essentially the short-term spin doctrine on U.S. government public diplomacy responses to third world crises, not so much on cultural diplomacy, private initiative, private exchange, and the like. Two other problematic terms are third world and cold war. So for those of you keeping score, that's three out of five terms just in my title that are fuzzy, troublesome, or both. Uh, like I said, we have to focus on the importance of naming, getting these definitions right. So let me touch on these things briefly uh, so you'll see the sort of landscape that I'm working in. Uh, as a Cold War construct, third world uh, came to connote Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, and Oceania, out, Oceania excuse me, outside the Western first and communist second worlds. Despite the fact that Cold War is over, the construct has survived because even though it includes a dizzying variety of peoples and cultures and histories and so forth within it, uh, there is enough in common, most of all economic underdevelopment, uh, for the concept to endure, although these days we're more likely to use the term uh, global south. Now, I think you'll agree with me that there's something hopelessly reductive about both terms. Because they're so broad, what can they possibly ultimately mean, either Global South or Third World? What could these continents, let alone the various countries and peoples within them, possibly have in common that would outweigh their differences? I mean, a Trinidadian is not the same as a Nigerian, is not the same as a Malaysian, right? We're talking about a vast expanse of the globe. But then again, even if Third World, per se, is just useful shorthand, as a conceptual matter, it helps to remind us that there are other issues, other identities, potentially transnational ones, in play. Perhaps that Trinidadian is of African descent, not Indian. Perhaps the Nigerian is Yoruba, not Igbo. Perhaps the Malaysian is of Chinese heritage, not Malay. Perhaps all are Muslims. Perhaps all are Christians. Perhaps all are neither. This is relevant to the present study and the present, stay, present day because it underlines a key point. We are inclined to think of national identities as being paramount. And partly that's because during the period under study in the 20th century, as these peoples of the world are struggling to establish and define national identities, they were paramount. But they weren't the only ones in play, either then or now. Public diplomacy has to take account of this fact if it's to have any hopes of success, and it often <laughs> did neither. Okay, so if I thoroughly complicated two of my terms, what about Cold War? Should be pretty straightforward, no? Well. It is, but then why do I stop in 1965? What's so special about that year? Well, I stop in 65 for a couple reasons. And grad students, please take note of the first one. One, you have to stop somewhere. You can always move the goalposts if you have to closer to where you are. Two, because uh, that year marked the escalation of the Vietnam War, it marks off a new chapter of public diplomacy, both in terms of the U.S. image abroad and of how the U.S. sought with less and less success to shape it. But the main reason I stopped in 1965 points us back to this matter of national identity. The establishment of nations and their identities in the first world and the concurrent establishment of a non-racialized citizenship in the first world was a product of what I call the global race revolution. That's the massive post-war shift in race relations both within and between nations. Its main engines were decolonization in the third world and the fight for equality, most of all the civil rights movement, in the first it was historic in huge measure. At a minimum, it overturned institutions that dated back to Columbus, and arguably it overturned institutions that dated back to Ramses II. It forces us to, uh, to rethink post-war history, and it forces us to recognize that this global race revolution was more important to the Third World itself than the Cold War was. Yet U.S. public diplomacy, more often than not, focused on the Cold War. In other words, it missed the conceptual boat. Since part of my conclusion is the importance of getting the big picture right, 
The 65 cutoff helps because by that point, the race revolution had reached the end of one chapter, if not uh, the end of its larger story. It provides a vantage point, therefore, 1965 does, to look back, to look ahead, to look around, especially ending the book, as I do, as we'll see, in Vietnam, where once again the race revolution and Cold War converged, and once again the U.S. concentrated on the latter. Now, the race revolution construct is one of several contributions that I hope the book will make. There is growing scholarly interest in public diplomacy, as recent publications by Mershon alumnus Kenneth Osgood, among others, have shown. Also, as noted, there is a burgeoning literature on race and foreign relations, including some very interesting recent work on cultural diplomacy between the U.S. and the Third World. But in general, these two subgenres have missed each other. U.S. studies of public diplomacy have focused on first, second world or intra first world exchanges, and studies of U.S. Third World relations have missed public diplomacy. So, what I'm hoping my project to do will bridge these two subgenres and contribute to both. In addition, and this is one reason I'm so grateful for the Mershon gig, is that the deeper I go into this subject, the more I realize how inescapably interdisciplinary it is and how unprepared I was when I began uh, to treat it as such. Public diplomacy can be treated historically, but it is tightly interwoven with political science, with policy and security and communication studies. And so I've been playing catch-up in those literatures, and I'm hoping that the assembled expertise of Mershon will help further that process uh, still more. My study will be interdisciplinary as its study, uh, as, it, as its subject, and its sponsors demand, since, as I mentioned, part of the Smith-Richardson charge is to apply these lessons in ways that current-day policymakers will find useful. But it will be fundamentally a work of historical scholarship. It will draw on archives uh, such as the National Archives in Washington, D.C., the records of the U.S. Department of State and the U.S. Information Agency, as well as records of the presidential libraries, uh, some of which research is still remaining to be done, and some collections which, conveniently enough, are here in Ohio. Carl Rowan's papers at Oberlin College and uh, Edward Murrow's papers on microfilm at Ohio U uh, will be part of my itinerary, part of the use of my time uh, as a Marshawn Fellow. The book will be organized, as Rick noted, around a series of case studies that cover four regions of the Third World, Middle East, Central and South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the littorale of the Asian continent from east uh, down to south, essentially Korea down to India. Each case study will recount a particular episode or crisis and analyze the success or failure of American public diplomacy campaigns around it. I'll assess the techniques employed to convey the U.S. Messages to for message to foreign audiences and the policy machinery orchestrating it in Washington and U.S. outposts abroad. This geographical and chronological coverage will focus on crises managed and opportunities both taken and missed. My hope is to get a sampling that cuts along several axes, which together will add up to a big picture of the evolution of public diplomacy, the Cold War, and the Third World all at once. Now, the starting point of that evolution uh, is the Truman administration, although uh, I wanted to say a quick word about the World War II machinery that that administration inherited. During the war, the American uh, government built, more or less on the fly, the machinery for reaching foreign publics and foreign military forces in both Europe and the Pacific. Most often termed psychological warfare, this was seen by officials as an extension of combat, and if not a necessity, then at least an asset. Tight control over news and information, the dropping of leaflets and goodies like soap and chewing gum and so forth on or behind enemy lines, and perhaps most of all radio, were the main tools of what was not yet called public diplomacy. Yet these wartime creations, these were wartime creations, and after wartime, most of them were peremptorily disassembled. As World War II receded and the Cold War began to take shape, the increasing volume of Soviet propaganda, both in terms of loudness uh, and uh, amount, uh, against the U.S. demanded a commensurate response. Yet here, too, there is little that could be described 
as coherent, comprehensive, or even competent outside a few isolated good ideas, such as the Fulbright and Smith-Munt Acts of 1948. The United States Information Agency, or USIA, would not be formed until 1953, and even then it proved a work in progress for some years afterward. From the March 1947 Truman Doctrine until the founding of the USIA, American public diplomacy was scattershot, muddled, and reactive. One begins to see the teasing out of various concepts through a variety of mechanisms in response to a variety of events and experiences. The Fulbright and cultural exchanges were one such. The relaunch and expansion of the Voice of America was another. But taken together, these and other markers, like NSC4, the December 1947 document by the Truman administration, uh, showed how that administration saw the logic of the Cold War beginning to take shape. In particular, the Truman Doctrine spotlit the importance of hearts and minds. It didn't use that phrase. It's from later. Soviet propaganda helped to raise the international profile of the Jim Crow regime in the American South in ways that made the stakes of the public diplomacy war very clear. Soon after that, the outbreak of the Korean War showed the importance of winning hearts and minds both inside and outside of hot war zones. Truman-era officials worked their way up these various threads, kind of feeling their way, devising a series of trial and error a succession of trial and error structures and pitches for U.S. public diplomacy. So with that background in mind, uh, let me look ahead to give you a sense of where the book goes, where the case studies are located. And then as a kind of a sample, I'll go into one of those case studies briefly so you'll see exactly the kind of thing I want to do. For the Truman years, the case studies I focus on are the independence of India and Pakistan in August 1947, the establishment of the Rio Pact in September 47, leading up to the organization of American, estate, American states in Bogota, March 1948, and the early phase of the Korean War from June through December 1950. The independence of South Asia was the first cresting of that post-war wave of decolonization, and one which, thanks to Nehru's neutralism, posed a key challenge to the early Cold War, to early Cold War policymakers. Rio and Bogota count alongside Greece and Turkey as the part of the Third World to which the Cold War first came. In addition, one early incarnation uh, specific to Latin America, which I didn't mention earlier, makes it a bit of a proving ground for what came later. Thanks to Nelson Rockefeller and the Office of Inter-American Affairs, starting in the 1930s, the United States had engaged in some fairly serious efforts at opinion shaping, not to say propaganda, in Latin America. This longer relationship makes it an excellent place to test the, the, the short-term efforts to sell the Rio Pact in Bogota, since in, in principle, the audience had already been primed. Finally, the Korean War offered the chance to practice public diplomacy in a time of war and at different levels, on the ground in the war zone, around the region as a demonstration of firmness and justice in the American way and all the rest, and around the world more broadly as part of the now higher stakes Cold War. So the three Truman-era uh, case studies will be South Asia, Latin America, and the Korean War in the years 1947 to 50. The Eisenhower administration was really the critical mass phase of American public diplomacy, including in the Third World. The concept was central to Eisenhower's vision of and waging of the Cold War. It drew on the Truman precedents as well as on Ike's own experience in the European theater of World War II. Now this represented an evolution on a couple of fronts. Institutionally, public diplomacy now found its home in the USIA. The USIA itself was brought up the chain to virtual membership in the NSC and expanded the use of covert ops means to public diplomacy ends. There are many episodes that would make good case studies, and I've chosen four. This will make the Eisenhower section bigger than others, but again, these are the formative years, so I think I can justify that. The four are the period between the Caracas Conference and the Guatemala Intervention, March through June 1954, the Bandung Conference of April 1955, the Suez Crisis of 1956, and the achievement of independence by Ghana in March 1957. 
Now, I may actually throw in one more, the Little Rock Crisis of September 1957, because that event was another of these sort of landmarks in the internationalization of Jim Crow. But for now, it's in my epilogue section, so I'm still weighing whether or not I'm going to make it a full-fledged uh, case study. Now, the reason I picked these is because my research thus far has shown them to be milestones in that global race revolution that I talked about earlier. Guatemala is a bit of an outlier in this sense, but I'm throwing it in there anyway because it's a good example of the organic relationship that grows up between covert ops and public diplomacy uh, in the Eisenhower years. The Kennedy administration case study that I've chosen, the Alliance for Progress, or the AFP, is a nice segue from that last point because it was the clearest example, not only it happened in Latin America, because, but because it's a clear example, probably the clearest up, till the time, up to that time, of policy as public diplomacy. And by that I mean there's no way to think about the Alliance for Progress, this program for aid and reform in Latin America, without believing, without knowing that it's going to be implemented while being trumpeted from all available rooftops. It is policy as public relations gesture. It's not totally coincidental that it's during the Kennedy administration that the term public diplomacy was coined. The AFP wasn't the only one of these launched by the administration. Of course, the Peace Corps is another sort of big ticket item in this, in this, in this inventory. But it was an episode in which all the stops were pulled out and in which U.S. public diplomacy, public diplomacy sophistication had grown markedly. All manner of media were used from printing on soap, uh, boxes that soap is sold in to comic books to radio, television, newsreels, anything you can think of. And perhaps as importantly, the level of sophistication of audience research had grown enormously to a level previously unseen. And here I want to turn your attention to, forgive me, I couldn't make these zoom and stay zoomed. Uh, thanks, Kathy. This isn't from the Alliance for Progress, but it's some of the other Kennedy research I did. If I may draw on it, we'll see. Um, for uh, this particular one is media use among Africans in Nairobi, Kenya. Now, I just picked this one at random because it's one of hundreds of studies conducted by the USIA's Research and Reference Service meant to show just how much the Americans are beginning to pay attention to how foreign peoples digest messages, how they receive and digest messages, whatever medium those messages may come in through. So this is a page of the report. How often do you usually listen to the radio? Daily, once or twice a week, less often. Do you own a radio? Where do you usually listen? Friend's house, shop, place where employed, club? In other words, the level of audience research that's going on here is one that would do Coca-Cola or Xerox or whoever proud. And it's new. Prior to the late 50s, early 60s, you simply don't have this kind of attention paid to how foreign publics get the messages they do. You want to think of it this way. The early phase of U.S. Cold War public diplomacy is someone shouting out of a megaphone, right? The second phase, starting here, is someone sitting out there in the audience and watching what all the other audience members are doing in response, how they're hearing the megaphone, what they react, how they react to it. One more slide in this, uh, in this vein. This is a graph of uh, preferred listening hours in Nairobi, Kenya. You can find studies like this for all over the world, not just third world, but including the third world. The radio and newspaper habits of Bogota, Colombia. There's one like that. Then what happens is the Kennedy administration would use this kind of data to figure out what to say when. These are the hours of the day, uh, 6 to 8, 10 to 2, uh, 6 to 8 again. They would use this to figure out when to say what uh, on the Voice of America. So, come on. 
what you've got by the time you get to 1960 is a kind of a watershed in not just how we put forth our message, but how we study how that message gets received. Now, this didn't always translate uh, to public diplomacy success, uh, and as I hope to show in, in my study of the Alliance for Progress, which has been surprisingly understudied from a number, number of angles, including this one, um, my hope is that uh, this work can close that gap. Kennedy himself said it was, quote, the most dangerous area in the world. So you combine that with Kennedy's naming of Edward R. Murrow to head the U.S. Information Agency, and you get a sense of not just the maturation of American public diplomacy, but in the rapidly decolonizing third world as well, making this for a nice period of study, uh, these two uh, trains crossing. As for the Johnson administration, I have basically one and a half case studies in mind. The half case study is a continuation of the Alliance for Progress into the Johnson years, ending with the Panama rights in 1964 and the Dominican Republic intervention of 1965. These will allow me to tie up some loose ends with the AFP and will form a nice contrast to the main case study, which is Southeast Asia during the period from the Tonkin Gulf uh, decision through the escalation of the war the next year. This period picks up during what Fred Logoval calls the long 1964, when the Johnson administration made the decision to commit and to escalate. Now, Logoval's work shows convincingly that domestic politics was central to those decisions in the decision-making halls of the Johnson administration, and I don't dispute this in the least. But what I want to delve into, building on the work of some of Fred Logoval's students, is the way in which uh, public diplomacy treated those decisions, marketed them, basically, in Vietnam and around the region. Vietnam occupies a special place in public diplomacy history. In the country itself, it was the site of an administrative innovation in public diplomacy called JUSPAO, J-U-S-P-A-O, which consolidated the military, political, culture, and diplomatic organs of, di of, uh, of diplomacy into one unit. In the wider world, it became a shorthand for American imperialism. It became the single biggest obstacle to successful American public diplomacy in the second half of the Cold War, just as Jim Crow had been the biggest obstacle in the first. My interest is a little narrower than that. It's simply to show how the Johnson administration sold its escalation around Southeast Asia during that first year of the war. So that'll bring us up to 1965. By that time, almost all the Third World was decolonized, and the last and worst exception, Vietnam, was reorienting U.S. foreign relations, uh, public diplomacy very much included. Now I want to back up a little bit and uh, show in some more detail one of the case studies that I mentioned, the Bandung Conference of 1955. For a long time, this conference was overlooked in the scholarship, partly because scholars were looking at it through what Matt Connolly calls Cold War lenses. In other words, they were seeing it more as a Cold War happening rather than as a race revolution happening. And partly it's because the documents just weren't available until the late 1990s. At that point, uh, I and some other scholars uh, used those documents to investigate the Eisenhower administration's response to Bandung. So I want to go through some of the highlights of U.S. public diplomacy regarding that uh, and then wrap up uh, with, a more, with a broad overview of where the project will, I think, end up. In December of 1954, uh, Indian Premier Nehru and Indonesian Premier Sukarno uh, called what they, were, what they called at the time, they convened what they called the Afro-Asian People's Conference it was set to hold, be held in April 1955, Bandung, Indonesia. This was going to be the first time that the Afro-Asian Arab world had come together in search of anything like a common voice. It was a historic event, right? Not only new nations like India, Indonesia, but soon-to-be nations like Ghana were going to be there. And the roster of people who attended, in addition to those I've named, Kwame Nkrumah, Gamal Abdel Nasser, is the third world's all-stars. These are the highlights 
of the decolonizing era, and Bandung was going to bring them all together. There's an important geopolitical context, too. Bandung, Indonesia is not far from an area of the world, East Asia and Southeast Asia, which has seemed to be in more or less constant crisis since the end of World War II. Now, here's the kicker and the challenge. The United States, the Soviet Union, all of Europe, essentially the white northern countries, are pointedly not invited to the conference. But China is. China, as technically the largest communist power at the time, by virtue of belonging to what Nehru defined as the third world, gets to go. So here you have, in the spring of 1955, the first ever meeting on their own volition of all of the Afro-Asian Arab peoples of the world, including China, not including the Cold War powers. So at a moment when either India or China or both might be able to seize this conference and use it to redefine the Cold War, the United States find itself not even able to attend. What does the Eisenhower administration do? It engages in what I call proxy public diplomacy. Its response to the Bandung Conference, rather than try to force its way in, rather than act heavy-handedly from the outside to try and influence it, acts not so heavy-handedly from the inside in a very discreet manner. Our last illustration. Let's see. Thanks, Kathy. This is a picture taken at the Bandung Conference. On the uh, in the middle there is uh, General Carlos Romulo, who's the head of the Philippines delegation, and on the right is Norman Cousins, an American journalist. Now, if you had to guess, looking at this picture, which one of these guys is the public diplomacy secret agent? Who would you pick? <laughs> right. My students sometimes figure, well, it's got to be the American newsman, right? He's the one who lives in Washington. He's the one who, because he's part of that establishment, has an incestuous relationship with the administration. Surely it's not this guy from the Philippines, my students thinking, whoever he is. But in fact, you're right. Carlos Romulo and the Philippine delegation, along with the Pakistani delegation, are the ones who are the Eisenhower administration's proxies, not the American newsman. Thanks to preparatory work, preparation with the CIA and with the State Department, uh, with the embassies around the world, in these countries, Pakistan and the Philippines, as well as, to a lesser extent, Turkey and Japan, the United States, as an administration, is able to shape not only the coverage of Bandung, which, you know, I guess is easy enough if you've got guys like Norman Cousins in your backyard, but also the final text of the Bandung Resolution, the Bandung Communique. So that if you read it, you see this document signed on by 29 nations and nations-to-be from around the third world, which amounts in its final text to something, and I quote John Foster Dulles here, as something we could live with, indeed be happy about, because it says what we feel in our hearts, even if we can't say so publicly. The Bandung Conference does not excoriate the United States for Jim Crow. It does not single out the United States for any kind of aggression in Korea anywhere else. Far from it. It's very even-handed and neutral on those topics. It doesn't mention the more inflammatory ones. It does include references to what it calls communist imperialism, communist colonialism. That is entirely the work of Romulo and his delegation and the Pakistanis who worked with the Americans subtly behind the scenes to make it so. So the final text of the document reflects American interests and word about those announcements uh, or announcement of that, that document 
and the rest of the coverage is spread in ways that the Eisenhower administration finds very favorable. Proxy public diplomacy produced a short-term success in both, but, but, uh, for the Eisenhower administration, but it's important to emphasize that both words in that phrase, short-term and success, uh, have to be a little bit qualified. The Bandung Conference, the proxy public diplomacy, did achieve what the Eisenhower administration initially had set out to do. The conference did nowhere near the damage that was at one point feared, and contrary to that, proved a boon. But this success did not last long or reach far. It did teach the Eisenhower administration the value of the proxy strategy, which it would use later in, uh, again and again, but it didn't push Washington far enough along in asking the big questions that might have reoriented American diplomacy before Suez forced the issue. Moreover, and this is perhaps the most important part, both for then and for, uh, for current purposes, it could not overcome unpopular policies in the region, and it seems that no amount of well-executed proxy diplomacy could have done so. If Bandung offered some small victories and useful lessons, it also left behind some missed opportunities. So, speaking of lessons and in keeping with the Smith-Richardson requirements and with Rashan's interdisciplinary spirit, what conclusions can we draw and how can they be applied to the present day? Well, overall, despite some shameful and some silly anecdotes and many unintended consequences, U.S. public diplomacy in the third world was on balance relatively inexpensive and relatively successful and was completely integral to overall Cold War strategy. And while the post-war moment was more unlike than like the current post-Cold War moment, there may still be some lessons we could usefully apply. I say more unlike than like because, in my view, the race revolution is really sui generis. On the other hand, to the extent that the age of terror, the war on terror, involves a similar reorienting, a similar contest of national and other kinds of loyalties in the Middle East, among Muslims abroad, among Americans, and people watching America from everywhere, perhaps there are some useful precedents. Now, among those lessons are, very tentatively at this point, as follows. One is the importance of using and exploiting new media technologies. At the time, it was radio, print, and then increasingly visual media. Now it's the digital revolution. Two is the importance of using these and all other tools uh, at our disposal in order to execute public diplomacy. And here I'm going to pull off of my prepared talk because I found an article that I think speaks to this very nicely. I want to quote a little bit of this piece from a British newspaper yesterday uh, to give you a sense of just how expansive public diplomacy can be and, and how sneaky, uh, not necessarily a bad thing, but how sneaky it can be as well. This is from The Telegraph. The headline is, Al-Qaeda is winning the war of ideas, says Home Secretary John Reid. There's a paragraph in here that's uh, it's speaking of radical Islam within Britain and the fear among the Blair government that uh, jihadism is uh, beginning to run amok among British Muslims. A key government weapon in the struggle to win hearts and minds is the decision to fund covertly an Islamic website appealing for moderation. A classic of new labor terminology, it is called the radical middle way. Nice. <laughs> government, <laughs> I want to say parenthetically, it's so easy to make fun of public diplomacy because in an age of irony, it all sounds so stupid. I mean, really, they can't believe anyone would believe this, right? But that's part of the challenge, I guess. Government documents disclose that the site is, quote, run as a grassroots initiative by Muslim organizations. However, it has most of its financial backing from the foreign office and home office. The site uses video and podcasts to spread an alternative message to young Muslims. Some content is available through iTunes and no and with no indication that it is effectively an arm of government. Around 100,000 CDs promoting moderation have also been funded and distributed free to Muslim students as a, quote, antidote, apparently, 
to the jihadist CDs circulated at universities and colleges. This is public diplomacy, too. It's not only an American uh, art form and not the only one that we're ham-handed at, I suppose. But I wanted to plug this in because I think it's a nice uh, illustration of just how broad uh, and pervasive uh, both the, but the phenomenon that public diplomacy is supposed to combat, whatever you decide its goals are, as well as the manifestations of public diplomacy itself can be. Okay, back to the lessons, wrapping up. The third lesson is the importance of keeping our eye on the right success metrics. Four is the importance of getting the big picture right. This is probably the hardest one. Uh, and as any historian will tell you, it's much easier to see from further down the road, and even then you can be sure of many arguments along the way. Finally, we must remember the limits of what public diplomacy can do. It cannot sweeten every pot. It can't put lipstick on pigs. If our policy is upsetting people, almost no amount of spin is going to change that. And if we conclude the policy can't be changed, then we have to accept that and move on in pursuit of the national interests, letting the chips fall and our spin doctors spin uh, as best they might. Thanks. Uh, Peter. No, and it's what I'd hoped would uh, come through with a picture of him with Norman Cousins, is that what you have is not only the focus on making sure you've got a, a proxy, make sure you've got an ally at the tables where these decisions are made, but also are literally whispering in the ear of someone who's going to spread that word. Um, I, you're right, it would have been good as well to have a follow-up on how this kind of message was then pitched into Southeast Asia, but I couldn't find as good a picture that uh, would, would convey that. Uh, however, there is some good stuff you can find in both State Department and USIA records on programs that are then uh, launched in uh, Indonesia, in South, South, Southeast Asia, uh, to show what the, the verdict on Vietnam was. And interestingly, this is where the proxy becomes important, I think both then and now, is that you get specific orders at almost every stage on just how much the American representative is supposed to claim or say this is an American thing, right? It'll say, just play this straight. If you've got Carlos Romulo saying what the Washington wants him to say, then that's then you don't need to have any other fingerprints on it. No editorial comments saying we agree with the general. Right? This is just the way that you've gotten that message out more subtly. So you're right. There's there's a, the missing piece of that is what happens next, and it's the hardest part of the study because you know you're you're really sort of chasing unicorns when you're trying to figure out what people's attitudes were sort of vastly and amorphously. Uh, so all you can do is follow the message, and and, and when I say there need to be success metrics, follow the message to a point that's far enough away in time where you can see if it worked, if it served American policy interests. Uh, it may or may not have made them like us. It may or may not have had longer-term effects. But uh, what I try to do by keeping a tight focus on this event and then, let's say, the next couple of months is to show how it paid off the strategy that uh, the, the administration in question wanted it to do. So I hope that answers the question. I'm not sure. So, John. I think the definition of public diplomacy is somewhat narrow. Uh, according to it, 
I think people like Eleanor Roosevelt would be not quoted as public dip diplomats. Uh, the way sort of you set up your states is to operationalize them uh, with a focus on uh, USAID, US Information Agency, mm -hmm. in, in a sense that one can see public diplomacy as entirely epiphenomenal on what the National Security <coughs> Council wants or does, or CIA wants or does. So I'm wondering if you're maybe raising an issue of, you know, public diplomacy, if you don't have a church or an NGO, to me it's, a, it's not a public diplomacy, it's just state diplomacy. Right. Um, so what, what, what is sort of the, the cost and benefit using this term as opposed to sting doctrine? Right. I think yeah, well, the, um, the the cost is that you 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 do miss out on some some free agents, basically. Like someone like Eleanor Roosevelt, sometimes is working on her own accord, and sometimes is working on because someone asked her to do so. Um, the cost is that you you have to sort of you know tighten your focus and maybe miss some parts of the picture. I mean, I, I think it's probably the case that you know if you could pick through the polls of a foreigner's view of the United States, not just of policies but the U.S. generally that you'll find that you know, ads for McDonald's or Coca-Cola are going to have a vastly larger impact on their view than anything that the government has to say in any venue whatsoever. But I couldn't find a way to, to make this study work uh, if I focused on everything. Even the books that are out there, the, the literature on this, public diplomacy is, the literature on it is mostly written by former practitioners. Uh, you get people like Osgood who have done good work on aspects like propaganda. But there, for every one scholarly work like that, there's a half dozen by someone like Wilson Desard, who used to work for the USIA and who wants to sort of tell his story without drawing on documents. But it's more of an autobiography, more of a memoir, really. Um, in terms of that being too narrow, uh, the other books that are out there, either by practitioners or by scholars, uh, separate out things like cultural diplomacy because they feel like, I feel like, and I, I, I've come to agree, I just don't know how to answer the question any other way. Um, the study, the subject becomes simply too large and sprawling if you don't narrow it that way. Um, if I could find a way to, to weave that in, I, I would absolutely do so. Um, and I'm open to suggestions, <laughs> but uh, I, for now, I, I figured a case study focus with a shorter time horizon um, would give me a better chance of actually deciding, assessing whether or not the thing worked, right? Because, I mean, one of the things you see also in the Kennedy administration, this is the temptation of great audience research is that they get further and further away from that question of did it serve the policy? And they become more and more engaged in the question of do they like us? You know, do, or is our image good as an end in itself, right? And you know, that, that's fine, I mean, that's not unimportant, but you know, if you're talking about this from the perspective of someone like the NSC you know, who wants to make sure that a policy end is achieved, then you're only interested in this as an instrument to that end and not to, to something, something bigger. Alex? Um, Well, there, there definitely is, but the, the trouble becomes if, uh, if you try to sort of apply it too small d democratically, right? I mean, in the case of Bandung, 
you know, there's no evidence whatsoever that the Eisenhower administration cares what Filipinos think, right? But the Filipino regime is in our corner and is going to help us because the regime agrees. I mean, we're not twisting that arm. And Romulo is happy to say this stuff because he actually believes it, right? In terms of whether or not that's going to engage anything uh, bigger or deeper, um, that doesn't enter into the, the, the picture quite as much. In terms of uh, monologic versus dialogic, it's a great point, uh, and it's one of the reasons it's a frustrating subject to frustrating subject to study because you're trying to find out if there's a way in which uh, any kind of response can be elicited and understood and then acted upon in a way that's useful. That's what that Kenya study is getting towards doing. It wants to find out what the Kenyans listen to, where they get the news, and what they believe. It's a later part of the study. And then a year later, they go back and visit those same people and say, well, how do you feel about the U.S.? Did you hear about the Birmingham you know, church bombing and then things like this? And then what do you do with that information, right? I mean, you're talking then about how foreign, people, foreign peoples have absorbed news about the United States or about American policies abroad. And you're not able necessarily to, to, to operationalize that in ways that affect your, your policy because if the event's already happened, you know, the damage is kind of done, you have to do the best you can to spin, spin doctor it. If it's not, but it's something that you can't change, well, then you're kind of stuck knowing that this has hurt you. That's where the dialogue ends, right? And someone like Karen Hughes, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not going to go that far in the study, obviously, but she, you're right to point at her as kind of an example, a representative example of, of, of the the difficulty of getting this done right. I mean, she goes on a listening tour. That's supposed to be dialogic, right? She's supposed to be going around and, and hearing what people think. But, you know, that's uh, the, the, the actual good that that does at the end of the day. I, mean, I'm, I don't think anybody's convinced of. I mean, in that respect, the actual failure of public diplomacy to be a good thing, because that might teach us a lesson that we actually have to listen mm -hmm. rather than just telling mm -hmm. that, that's exactly that, That's absolutely true. Although, again, I see the, um, I mean, there, there's a very sort of difficult balance to strike because you, if you listen, starting with Kennedy, you, you listen so much that it's easy to lose the focus on, on what you're doing it for, right? And you focus more on whether or not they like us rather than whether or not their liking us helps us. And, and not to be totally Machiavellian about it, but I mean, if you're making foreign policy, that's what you want, right? I mean, you want this to, to serve an end. And um, that's, uh, that's a trick that I'm not sure we've mastered yet. John? It's an excellent, excellent question. And my favorite example, though I don't use it in the book, I'm so well. My favorite example is um, is actually, I don't have it in the book, but it's the Iran uh, coup, 1953, right? The the success metric I'm using to judge is you know did the administration did the administration in question achieve what it hoped to achieve by a given act, right? So in the case of Iran. They got what they wanted. Public diplomacy was a part of that, along with covert ops and some other things. But you know, the the, the sort of basic, the common narrative is that 26 years later, uh, it it helps to provoke uh, the Iranian Revolution because we prop up this dictator and arm the Savak and all the rest of it. So, by focusing on a short term, did the administration think it succeeded? I'm able to to at least get an answer, right? And if you extend the time horizon out further, then yeah, I mean, those same answers could turn very much back on themselves. The Eisenhower guys thought that Iran was, was, uh, was, was beautifully executed, well done, in a good, sound, cheap way to achieve American foreign policy goals. Public diplomacy is a part of that. But you need to separate out public, public, public diplomacy from that, right? Separate, I'm sorry? I mean, they're basically equivalent to coup, but that's not public diplomacy. Right, but uh, the public diplomacy becomes a part of the operation because they want to, res they want to reach and shape the Iranian public. Uh, well, 
that's, uh, I think that it absolutely would have, uh, in the case of Iran and both Guatemala, um, they put a high premium on reaching those publics in order that they not take up arms against the invaders and, you know, and side with the, uh, the Mossadegh or whoever in these two cases. Um, I guess in terms of proving that that had an effect, no, you can't. I mean, uh, all, I can, all I can track is whether or not the administration believed that it got what it wanted by doing what it did. Um, counterfactuals and other things, I'm not sure that I, I, can, I can do productively. I'm not sure I'm answering your question right. I want to make sure I've got you right. You're saying if they'd, if they'd done these same acts without having a public diplomacy component to them, then, and if they'd succeeded anyway, then maybe the public diplomacy is not that important? The arm, if I see arms come across the border and right. takes out our men, right. Right. Right, and the fact that it doesn't, at least you know, at the time, they, they, they chalked that up to the fact that they you know, got stories on the Guatemalan radio and into the press that said, you know, this is how things are going, and were able to shape you know, that portion of the Guatemalan, Guatemalan population who could read at the time that they could shape their decisions uh, to take sides in the coup or not. So, yeah, I, I, I want to say that at some level it's true that you know, if you remove the public diplomacy component from a lot of these, you might have ended up with the same policy success or failure anyway. Uh, but what I'm interested in finding out is the extent to which it, officials drew lessons about what worked and didn't and then applied them down the road. Jason, I was thinking of thinking about those cases in Indonesia in 1958. Mm -hmm. There were three cases of covert operations in the Eisenhower years, which could have been a public relations disaster for the U.S. And in fact, in, in all three of those, does I know the U.S. press, but doesn't also the international press largely by the argument that these events did not occur primarily as a result of U.S. covert intervention. Right. And that doesn't just happen. I, I would guess that's a result of a very active effort to try and spin doctor this in a way that these, these events are, 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 are narrated mm -hmm. by the press in a way that would be inconceivable in the 70s, 80s, and after. I mean, it's, it's inconceivable. I mean, the Indonesia 58 operation, which I've written about, but not on this side of it, I mean, it's fascinating to me that everyone, not everyone, but the world press generally buys the story, mm -hmm. that even though an American CIA pilot was shot down and caught red-handed, they buy the story that he was a soldier of fortune, because Eisenhower said he was, mm -hmm. and that this wasn't an American effort to overthrow the Sukarno regime. And, and that is very, that, that's a very time-specific thing. Right. Because, uh, you know, after Vietnam, it's inconceivable that people would take the American government at its word. That's, that's exactly true. That's one reason that this is a, the, the lessons we can draw from this era may be limited in use just because the global media environment we're in is so different and the, and the sort of skepticism factor is so high. But to tie it back to John's question, that uh, brings up a distinction between the sort of public diplomacy in the field, right? I mean, what they're making sure the Indonesian public hears and how they spin it to the rest of the world uh, post facto. And I, I, I focus more on the former than on the latter. Um, but you're absolutely right that that's something uh, after the fact, um, which uh, helps to sort of shape the main narrative in ways that don't always correspond either with the truth or, or in some cases with American interest, although usually with American interest it does end up serving those. Um, and it's one of the things that I hope, I mean, people who have expertise in communication studies uh, here at Marshawn can, can help me out with because I've been playing back up on some of these literatures in terms of how people process signals and how they react to them and how they form opinions over time. 
And the way that the Cold War media environment is different enough from our current one uh, is going to have a large impact on the conclusions I can finally draw uh, and offer at the end of the book. So. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable with the use of the term proxy um, as opposed to ally. Okay. Um, and, and, and the foundation that you might be creating, you know, to argue that Romulo mm -hmm. in this particular case is somebody who is sort of the, the idea of proxy almost um, suggests that he is acting under the orders of the United States government. But right. the Philippines has been independent since 1946. Mm -hmm. Has, its governments have goals. Uh, Romulo's foreign minister at that time, right? Uh, yes. yes. Um, the Philippines government has, has goals of its own, which which are um, to a large extent parallel with goals of the United States at the time. There's right. the Baha movement, which uh, these Philippine governments want to oppose, and, and so forth. It's not it's not that the Philippine government's goals are all the same as the United States, but there certainly is uh, more of an alliance between the United States and the Philippines in sure. Southeast Asia than there is with anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, the Filipino, there would, you would expect, I mean, if I were Soprano, I would have been expecting that the Filipino who comes has consulted with the United States first. Mm -hmm. And he's going to, in some sense, be represented, because Soprano right. is no dummy in this situation. Right. He's right. a pretty sophisticated actor. Right. Um, but, but the Filipinos are presumably using the Americans for their purposes, uh, despite what you hear sometimes of American military circles, you know, as though the Filipinos are puppets of the United right. States. Well, uh, you hit it there at the end on, on the term that you know a colleague of mine suggested I use, which was puppet. In my case, back to him was exactly what you say. That no, there's more of a cooperative relationship. No one's twisting his arm. Romulo and the Filipino delegation, the Philippine government, they actually believe this stuff. I mean, they believe and agree with what the United States is saying. And I had in mind proxy, I suppose, in, in the modern corporate sense. You know, a proxy vote or something. Not as a, not a puppet. And you're right. I suppose I could use allied. That would not be incorrect, but. Um, I get the feeling if it were an alliance, then there would, you would have a sort of both parties perhaps at the table, right? I mean, to say, well, we have got this united front. Romulan never says, well, you know, Washington agrees with me that, you know, maybe these things. Maybe it comes back to Alex's question, you know, mm -hmm. uh, where Alex is asking how, how the dialogue fit in here, not just monologue. Right. Because if Romulan is just acting on behalf of the United States. Which he's not, that, right. But if he were, that's right. a monologue. Right. But if there is a feedback process in which the way in which the Filipinos think about Southeast Asia is something that is discussed in Washington, mm -hmm. as opposed to Romulo coming and reporting to the to Dulles right. uh, or whatever, then this makes a big difference in terms of the possibility for dialogue, uh, for a learning process. I, mean, I, I can't mm -hmm. spell this all out, but mm -hmm. of course the United States policies towards the region, Southeast Asia, ASEAN, and so forth later on, are a lot more sophisticated than they were uh, at this time. Today, Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I would agree with uh, Mr. Ramos that we understood the third world better then uh, or now. But yeah, uh, just, you know, to say, but the the point, the point is well taken. Yeah, that's it's a lot to wrestle with. Thank you. Um, well, it's supposed to play a large one. Uh, it's supposed to, to, I mean, that's, you know, Karen Hughes is the first uh, person I'm aware of to ever have the title Under Secretary of State for public diplomacy because the previous, the USIA was independent until 99 and then it was absorbed into the State Department and then that time, that, that job fell into the category of public affairs. And the Public Affairs Office of the State Department is a pretty big operation. Every embassy has a PAO uh, around the world. But this was supposed to be an elevating of that to, to a much higher profile because uh, you know, the administration, current administration views this as this overarching war of ideas, not just military, not just Iraq. So that is for sure part of it. And there's another part, this may be what you're referring to as well. Um, Secretary of State Rice, not too long ago, uh, reoriented the sort of career incentives for state officers, right? So now you're expected to do more hard time in, in, in really uh, tough draw locales uh, in the third world in ways that shift the focus from Europe into uh, places like India and East Africa and so forth, where we either have build, uh, you know, budding relationships, budding strength in relationships, or uh, national security concerns that we want to have someone eyes and ears on the grounds to, to study. Um, so I guess by just putting the two and two together, uh, the four I would say is that the State Department under the current administration, I would guess this would be continued, is going to put uh, as large a premium on uh, projecting and polishing the American image as it did at uh, the time uh, we're talking about the early Cold War. My guess is that unless they learn some of these lessons, they will not have much more success. The global media environment is different enough and the issues are still murky enough that it's going to be hard for them to do anything that achieves uh, sort of goals that aren't clearly defined. And this is where I come back to this idea of success metrics. I mean, all you can ever do if you're in Washington is identify what you want to achieve and then do a plan for achieving them and hope that it works, right? And then if it does, you say, well, I guess our plan worked. If all we want to do is, quote unquote, improve the image, I mean, you know, you're left with a bunch of different metrics that flow out from that. Should we judge it by how many applicants we have for visas to come visit? Should we judge it by how many cans of Coke we sell? Should we judge it by the Pew poll on global attitudes? I mean, you have to sort of figure out what it is that you want to achieve and then how you're going to use it. So I guess my answer to the question would be that if you take those two things, uh, reorientation toward the third world and a focus on public diplomacy, uh, what you'd be left with, and I would hope this is the case, is that uh, the current and subsequent administrations are going to make this uh, a much bigger deal if they can properly define what it means. I mean, again, we're talking about a kind of an amorphous thing. So. Oh, yeah.
Uh, absolutely. Right. Um, I actually considered, I didn't end up doing it, but I considered doing a case study on Sputnik uh, by trying to find uh, an area of the third world identified as key and then following how the administration spun Sputnik, you know, when that happened in 57. And I'll be able to introduce it sort of, uh, you know, in passing because the period I'm covering is going to go over that 1957 date. But I decided against it because even though there's a lot you could work with in terms of science, basically, you know, not only space race but nuclear technology, um, become these kind of tokens that the Eisenhower administration is going to use to try and reach third, third world peoples. This is largely because they define the problem, first of all, in terms of the communist struggle, but in a related manner, in terms of underdevelopment. And the idea is, well, we'll make this pitch, and the most famous one is Adams for Peace, which is Eisenhower's sort of show, showpiece. We will show not only that we're responsible for nuclear power, but that our possession of atomic technology is going to lead to benefits, including development, for everybody. Cheap electric power and cars that go you know, on, on plutonium and all the rest of it that we can share with and give to and so forth the third world. So they make a very big uh, deal. Uh, as much as that, and, uh, the space race I don't get as much into because you know, starting in earnest in 62 with you know, Gagarin, right, 61, um, the early stuff... I don't follow that as much, and there's no American successes that they could trumpet. So all I would be chasing was how they're responding to the Soviet sort of, uh, Soviet sort of uh, advances. But my inclination would be to frame it in terms uh, that you know, the, the Eisenhower guys would have best been able to understand it and pitch it to the third world, not only Eisenhower, but, but uh, Kennedy as well, which is how this science is going to affect you, man or woman on the street in Caracas or Venezuela or uh, you know, Cairo or Baghdad or whatever else, right? Um, and the answer is I didn't do a lot of that empirical research, so I couldn't answer your question from that point of view. But it would be uh, an interesting uh, exploration to make because there you have kind of, um, you know, the idea, if the idea of the Cold War is that you've got sort of West versus East, one society versus another, and free democracy and progress and all that kind of stuff versus the totalitarian East. And by the way, we've got better, you know, missiles and rockets and, and, and everything else. And this science is the way forward for you. I mean, that's a pitch that would absolutely resonate with uh, third world leaders who were concerned most of all with A, nationalist independence, and B, development for their new nations. Um, so, well, not every time. He did send the snowplows to Ghana, uh, let's not forget. Um, so there's a, there, yeah, it's, it's, it was something that, um, it's a road I'm not going down, but it's, a, it's an excellent uh, suggestion. Oh, I'm sure I could. I'm sure I could. I don't go that far, but I, you know, if I went, if I went to '69, I'm sure that I could uh, could could find that. Um, but I, I don't. Uh, so I, I would be focusing. Gosh, I guess only Project Mercury would count as a success, you know, in the period I'm talking about, right up to '65. Well, I'm going 47 to '65. So the, the the main, like the finish line of the space race, I, don't, I wouldn't get to. But yeah, I mean, in terms of that being something that would appeal not just space but science generally. That would be a, a great uh, road that I'm not going to go down, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but someone should. So, Tom. One, one. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about the, the, um, the, the complexity of finding a metric for um, assessing efforts in damage control. Mm. Because sometimes you're trying to achieve something positive, sometimes an event happens, think of Abu Ghraib, mm -hmm. which is unquestionably a negative. Right. And then the issue becomes, how do you limit the damage right. 
that is going to be done by that event. Right. And without knowing how much worse it might have been in the absence of a response. Exactly. Right. That, that, that gives you the counterfactual. Right. You think, of the, you think of the job of a Hollywood publicist, for instance, as being really comparable to the government spin doctor. Mm -hmm. Mel Gibson is caught drunk, you know, in, in Malibu riding, you know, 90 miles an hour. So it's an unquestionably negative event for mm -hmm. his image. Right. So the issue then is how do you limit the damage to his image and his career if you're his agent, if you're the individual spin doctor, the government's trying to do the same thing. Right. If an event like Abu Ghraib happens, there's no way you can avoid that being a negative. So then you try and limit, limit it. But, ha but without asking a counterfactual, mm -hmm. how much worse would it have been if we didn't spin doctor so successfully? Right. How do you actually measure it in a way that would satisfy a social scientist? That you probably can't satisfy the social scientist. The best you can do, and I don't mean that. Let <laughs> me take that back. Um, what I mean is, uh, if you, um, what, what I think as a historian, what I want to do is to, to figure out what they thought the worst case scenario would be. And they would spell that out often. They would say, you know, this will cost us India's vote in the UN for the next two years. Uh, this will cost us uh, the goodwill of any new sub Saharan African nation. Take something like Jim Crow. I mean, really, you have. The, the, the main focus of American spin doctoring for the whole of the Cold War, there's two of them. One's Jim Crow and one's Vietnam. And they sort of split the Cold War in half because even after Vietnam, it lingers for so long as the shorthand for American imperialism that you, you, the American spin doctoring then is always caught up in, in trying to, to undo the lingering damage of that. But in terms of Jim Crow, what you get is a, is a sort of a, a two tracks. Uh, one is, you know, this will hurt us with the non-aligned nations, with Africa. Um, in some unspecified way, right? It might lead Nkrumah to getting closer to the Soviets. That would be bad. It might lead him to play us off the Soviets. That wouldn't be so bad. We can just buy him off with some snowplows. It might uh, cause the, I don't know, the, the, the right wing in that country to, to dissolve. You sort of pose these ideas, but you're not as worried about them because the worst that would happen is sort of damage done to an image by people who maybe can't hurt that image or can't, can't do any more solid damage to you. The other interesting part of it, though, is that what you get in cases of damage control, even if it involves something like race, like the Little Rock crisis in September 57, is less than you would expect of a focus on Africa. God, this will kill us in sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, Nehru is going to eat our lunch. They're going to say we're racist and we're Jim Crow and all the rest of it. This is going to confirm all the Soviet propaganda from all these years. But the bottom line of all that is usually pretty mild. Where they're really worried about it hitting them is in Europe. Where they really end up getting worried about this stuff is Jim Crow is going to make Europe begin to doubt that we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, that we are the good guys in the Cold War because they're going to see these images of injustice and oppression from our own soil. That becomes a much more tangible way. Well, if Europe falters, if neutralist sentiment gains, if the French Communist Party wins more in the next round of elections, that's going to materially affect our position in the Cold War on the part of the Cold War that we think is the front lines in Europe. So it's kind of a ricochet, if that uh, helps. They, they class, uh, the administration analyses class these sort of possible ramifications of a given thing, and how are we going to spin this? To the extent that you can, uh, you posit what you think are going to be the worst-case scenarios, and we now, many years later, have no way of knowing if there was a worst-case scenario they missed uh, or... I guess we would have a way of knowing this if there's worst case scenario that did occur out of it. You know, the longer term ramifications of the Iran coup, you know, that, that have the connections back to 53. So, 
Without being able to answer the counterfactual, I can only say I'm going to take the administration for the, at their word and say what they thought was the worst case and to see what they thought it achieved. Uh, because what you can then do is kind of build a chain of how they use new discoveries like proxy public diplomacy in new areas to avert these, what they thought would be disasters. So hope that answers the question. We have one more if we can, but I don't want to keep us long. Well, the comparison that gets made, I think, is, is probably as much by administration spin doctors as by anyone else, is that it is the, the new Cold War, and this administration is the Truman administration, uh, fighting an unpopular war uh, in which it's bogged down, um, unable to become popular, very unpopular in its own time, but one which, because it set the, the parameters for the, the long war to come, uh, will be more appreciated as time goes on. I'm not sure I'd buy that spin, but and that's um, how it's being posited. Uh, I would say I think it's true to the extent that the war of ideas is a vital part of it. And so in that sense, I guess I would agree with someone like Karen Hughes, even though I don't think she did you know, a great service or a great job in doing what she did with the tour. Um, I like that they're at least fumbling toward an answer uh, with these, and they, and they understand its importance. Um, that British example I gave suggests that maybe you know, the, the, the target of all these efforts uh, is one that we have to more carefully identify because, you know, something like Iraq can become like this bug light, right? It sort of, it, it attracts all this attention and everything else, whereas the real battle for hearts and minds might be happening somewhere else. Uh, so we have to be conscious of that global audience uh, unevenly distributed uh, the world over. So I kicked Rick out as he was about to close. Any other questions or thoughts, comments? Do I have great timing or what? I sent you going just as I was uh, wrapping up the last question. Um, if there's nothing else? I, I want to thank Jason for being here. I want to make it um, an announcement that in the spring, I think it's April, I don't remember the exact day, we're hosting a conference on public diplomacy. Mm -hmm. This right. will be partly a reason uh, mm -hmm. the conference will happen, partly because Jason's here. It follows on the conference on public diplomacy we did last mm -hmm. spring, which I thought was very successful, one of the most interesting conferences we've done where we brought many of the leaders here and talked about what they think their job has been. Mm -hmm. uh, those of you who are interested in this, USC has set up a center yeah. for the study of public diplomacy, which I think is the leader in the country now in this and is getting a lot of attention. Yeah. If I could, one, one quick answer for the grad students in the room. Uh, you noticed the shots I was showing you, even if the documents were digital pictures. Uh, this is a recent um, sort of discovery of mine about how to do archival research. And I'd be happy to talk to anybody who is interested in, in, in learning some more about that. Uh, I'm in 220D, uh, emails on the Mershon website, so if you don't catch me now, then anytime. Jason will be here the rest of the year, so thank you all very much. Oh, thanks. Yes, and it's one of the things that it makes me miss the, uh, the Caribbean subject, because I feel like I can offer so much more definitive answers. You really get in such a conceptual labyrinth with all of this that...